Hello and welcome to this Business Council for Sustainable Development Australia recorded webinar. My name is Andrew Peterson, the CEO of the Business Council for Sustainable Development. And this webinar is being launched on 8 March 2019 to mark International Women's Day. Production of this webinar is being held on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and we respect their elders past, present and emerging. The title of this webinar, From White Noise to Green Shoots, was deliberately chosen to reference the women's suffragette movement and in particular pose the question whether we're seeing progress on matters of human rights and in particular that of equality of women in the workplace, whether it's equality of opportunity, of pay or of inclusion. The immediate past president and CEO of Unilever, Paul Pullman, said in 2018 that, in his words, at the current pace, it'll take 217 years to achieve gender equality. And that's bad news for the economy and society. Women's leadership cannot be a nice to have for business. Companies that continue to have a male dominated leadership will miss out on business opportunities unlocked by gender balanced teams, Holman said. So the lack of women's leadership is a global business issue. And according to the most recent available statistics, women occupy just 17% of board seats worldwide. And in the US, for example, women account for an abysmal 5% of all CEOs amongst S&P 500 companies. In the UK, the situation is even worse. In 2016, there were more men named David in eighth than women, six CEOs in the FTSE 100. So we look then at some other challenges and other opportunities that emerge as a result of this issue. In the 1,557 largest listed companies in the 20 Asia Pacific countries, for example, measured by market value, women account for just 12.4% of board seats. While in Africa, women hold 14.4% of board seats at the 300 largest listed companies. In 2016, one study of 1,259 listed companies in Latin America and the Caribbean countries showed that on average, 8.5% of board members were women. And what about Australia? We'll come to that shortly. And in a report only released last week, women on average have only three quarters of the legal protections given to men during their working life, ranging from bans on entering some jobs to a lack of equal pay or freedom from sexual harassment, according to a study issued by the World Bank. Now these researchers examined whether adult men and women had equal rights under the law in 187 countries to produce an equality index and measure progress over the last decade. They probed laws linked to women's work and economic freedom, including the right to work, equal pay, penalties for sexual harassment at work, parental work protections and inheritance rights. Six countries, Belgium, Denmark, France, Latvia, Luxembourg and Sweden, hold a perfect score of 100 in the index compared to none 10 years ago but 56 countries made no improvements to equality laws at all in the areas studied over the last 10 years. 
Europe and Central America, uh, Central Asia rather, had the highest regional equality score, with women getting about 85% of the rights granted to men on average. While in the Middle East and North America, women had fewer than half the rights of men. In fact, women's leadership in business is critical to driving significant economic opportunity and driving better performance, as well as broader, long-term benefits for society and the environment. The truth is that a diverse staff helps fuel better innovation, which probably helps explain why diverse companies make, on some estimates, 19% more on average than less diverse ones. So how can business continue to move beyond the numbers and quotas? A recent New York Times article, for example, even makes a pro-inclusion argument to end gender quotas. And in doing so, ensure that you're in truly embedding diversity and an openness to different perspectives inside your organisation. Now, the Business and Sustainable Development Commission's Women Rising 2030 initiative, released in a report last year called Better Leadership, Better World, Women Leading for the Global Goals, argued that gender equality in the workplace could actually unlock more than US $12 trillion in new market value linked to the UN Sustainable Development Goals or Global Goals. Now, the Better Leader, Leadership, Better World Report identifies six leadership com competencies critical to successfully developing leadership opportunities in line with the Global Goals. They are long-term thinking, innovation, collaboration, transparency, environmental management, and social inclusiveness. Research highlighted in the report underscores that women in business can play a critical role in, develop, in deploying these six competencies within more gender balanced leadership teams. So with that opening, and to explore some of those issues, I'd now like to introduce our panel of senior leaders from across diverse industries to discuss the status of women's leadership in the workplace. From AGL, we have Dale Stevens. From Arup, Karen Coker. From IAG, Jackie Johnson. And from NRMA, Siobhan Spoljarek. Now, we'll start off with a few comments from each of the panel, giving us a sense of their observations of the current environment and what they're witnessing as challenges and successes. After that, we'll dive into a few key issues in which the panel have agreed to discuss the gender pay gap, the value of STEM across secondary and tertiary education to build capacity and resilience, and finally, investment in women's leadership. So, using the time-honoured tradition of proceeding based on the alphabetical order of organisations represented, Dale, over to you in the first instance to start us off. So I'm Dale Stevens from AGL Energy. My role at AGL is a general manager of technology. And I've worked in technology my entire career over 25 years. And I've, I've seen that, that industry change a lot over those 25 years and the STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, and math uh, really take, uh, capture interest of people around the world, um, really trying to get many more people into our pipeline of people coming into this part, these, these careers. So, Outside of AGL and my work here in technology, I am the chair of the board for RoboGirls. That's a global not-for-profit uh, student-run organization that's trying to get more girls interested in engineering and related fields. I'm also an ambassador for Girl Geek Academy, which is another global organization trying to get more women and girls into technology, building more of the internet and starting their own businesses. So I work in the 
technology industry and I work with a lot of organizations trying to get more more people into the pipeline of technology as well. Um, I was previously at National Australia Bank and there I founded the Women in Technology program and that program worked really really hard on diversity and inclusion to really try to get more women into the senior leader pipeline and we celebrated getting from 18% up to 27%. Um, of women in that senior leadership pipeline. But at AGL, we already have over 40%. So that is across AGL, but also in technology, over 40% of women in our senior leadership pipeline in technology. I spoke about that at an event recently, and there was an audible gasp in the room because it is so unusual in the technology industry to be at that level of equality already. And so I think it's great the amount of work that's been done to achieve that is amazing. But my observation is really that it, it, that work never ends. You can't sit back and rest on your laurels and say, oh, well, we've done that now, what's next? Because that pipeline, you know, the pipeline to the senior leadership level and the pipeline coming through education and schools is always going to need work. Um, I look at the way education works today and building the pipeline that that we will get to experience in a few years is very different to the way education worked when I was at school, you know, teaching children about technology and the way that works. And there's so much work to be done still on getting children uh, interested in those STEM careers because kids are making choices subconsciously as young as five or six about what's a boy's job and what's a girl's job. So really keeping the topic of conversation open and really keeping pushing that leadership into driving for equality throughout all aspects of our pipeline is really important. We can't rest on the laurels to say we've achieved that equality isn't that great. We have to keep working really hard on it. And a bunch of the things that we're doing there is not just, you know, trying to fix women. It is, it is really all about how we offer flexible work. Every single job at AGL is flexible. Um, and, and really making that something that's within our culture, that it's not just something that, you know, that, that parents take up. Um, we have families at AGL recognising that more than 50% of our people, not just our women, have families to look after. Uh, really, really focusing in on those traditional gender roles are a thing of the past. But then outside of the technology part of AGL, we have, you know, power generation sites. Uh, and that's a much that's a much tougher space to you know achieve equality right now. I went to a, a store on the weekend, a safety a safety workwear store. Um, you know, all the racks and racks of high vis clothing, and there was there was there would have been a hundred racks of clothing in this store, and there was one rack for women, and that's really. Uh, represents what the what the construction kind of part of the um, part of our workforce is like and how much work there is to be done there. So that's an interesting space to step into too. Um, but I'm but I am really excited about the level of equality that we have managed to achieve and recognise that there is so much work still to be done um, and that we have to keep the conversation alive and that's what I'm proud to be here and part of today. Thanks. Thanks Dale. That was very um very helpful and we'll come back to some of those comments particularly about uh, what's a boy's job what's a girl's job and the question of what what is a job these days is uh, quite relevant let's move now to karen uh, karen coker from arab karen welcome and um, perhaps you could give us an insight into what your role is at arab and what work arab and yourself in arab are doing in relation to um, supporting women's work in the workplace 
Sure, good morning. Um, yes, my name's Karen Coker and I'm a principal at Arup. Um, I lead one of our um, teams here, the building specialist team, um, and I have a, a background in facade engineering. Um, I also lead the building envelope skills network for the region. Um, so I, I have a role which is still um, leading some projects, still uh, leading facade design on some of our projects, but it's also team leadership and kind of more broad regional and global leadership um, in our uh, facade engineering space. Um, so I guess some of my observations, um, challenges and successes that I'm seeing, I think even just back to basics, um, it'd be nice to think that the value of a diverse workforce and that conversation um, is now finished. But I, I think uh, a lot more people have moved on, but I still think there are some people who think diversity is a nice thing to do rather than seeing the obvious links between a diverse workforce and a more successful business. So I think, you know, we can't just assume that that's done and dusted and, and reports and research like that in the Better Leadership, Better World report, you know, is really important to continue demonstrating through solid facts and figures the real benefit that a diverse workforce has and the links between that and a, and a more successful business. Um, I think, you know, there's been a real shift in terms of just having the conversation. So, you know, whether it's um, more of these kind of things, um, International Women's um, Day, you know, it's bringing a lot more attention um, and the conversation around diversity, both within the media and society and then within our organisations, is more and more a, um, a daily topic, which I think um, it's really important that these these considerations around diversity are at the forefront of people's minds when making key decisions, whether it's around decisions of recruitment or salary reviews or promotion reviews. Um, and awareness is really kind of the first step to tackling things like unconscious bias, which, you know, I think particularly in the engineering field, which has been traditionally very male dominated, um, you know, I think overall, you know, the men are trying to do the right thing, but there is still this sense of unconscious bias and, and recruiting people and promoting people that are kind of like yourself. Um, so having these conversations all the time is just bringing that to the forefront of people's minds, which I think is a, is a good step. Um, in engineering itself, you know, there's still only 12.4% of engineers in Australia who are female, and actually that number has decreased. Um, so that, that is a challenge, um, and the figures um, vary in the courses at university, but are still reasonably low and still lower than male participation. So, you know, as we recruit, um, it is a challenge when um, the the number of people you have to choose from are less in the female space. We are having some success and we're really, really um, pursuing those highly talented females at university and we're, we're actually achieving 50% of our graduates being um, female, which is, which is fantastic. Um, so I think uh, the other the other things you know that that we're having some successes with you know we've we've had a very strong focus on our diversity plan for the last few years at Arab and we've achieved things like um, being a workplace uh, gender equality agency employer of choice for gender equality organisations. Our um, region chairmans have been um, part of the male champions of change organisation for quite a number of years now. Um, and in 2017, um, we were awarded Engineers Australia most outstanding company in the gender diversity space, which is which is great. And I think it's just a recognition that there has been a real focus in Arab 
on this in the last few years, but by no means are we saying, right, it's all sorted. Um, you know, there's certainly some, there's significant progress yet to be made. And I think the challenge particularly, which I think we'll be talking about a little bit later on, is how do you achieve that gender diversity through the middle and higher um, kind of levels of our organisation and in the leadership space. Um, finally, I think, you know, the thing that I'm seeing more of is this openness to flexible working. Um, and as a working, um, you know, young mum of young children myself, you know, having those options of flexible working open to me has been really critical in my career. But I think, um, as Dale mentioned, you know, that the key thing is it's not just, you know, a women's a woman problem. Um, you know, flexible working is needed by both men and women um, and parents and, and non-parents as well. Um, so I think, you know, it's great Arab have actually extended our parental leave policy um, to both men and women and flexible working is available to all people in all roles in the organisation. And I'm seeing more and more men actually taking up that option um, and deciding to find a way for them that they can achieve, you know, career success but also have the flexibility to um, engage more in their home lives. So, you know, I think there's definite change that we're seeing. Um, but as Dale said, you know, it's something that we just have to continue working on and continue talking about. Karen, thank you. And um, you raise a valid point about the, the role that men play in the equality narrative um, is in some senses even more important. Um, let's move on to Jackie. And Jackie, you have a very comprehensive role at IAG and IAG itself has undertaken some very comprehensive change over the last couple of years. Could you give us an insight into what your role at IAG and what IAG is doing at the moment in this area? Hi, so Jackie, uh, Group Executive of People, Performance and Reputation. And my role is really about looking at the performance of IAG through the lens of our culture and then building our reputation and with a focus on our safer communities work. So it's really how we make the money. And prior to this, I was CEO of our New Zealand operation and then two other divisions. And I've observed firsthand the skills that's needed to help resilient communities in the era of increased climate change, but also some of the social dynamics that are occurring in our communities. I'm also the co-chair of the United Nations Environment Program for Financial Initiatives along with my other co-chair who's based in New York, Citibank, and I'm a non-executive director of Community First Credit Union. Prior to that, I had a health background and then I worked in heavy industry as a safety consultant, both in BHP, Ford and the coal mines, so pretty male-dominated environments back in the 80s and early 90s. The few things I would like to say is IOG, we have been focused on this issue for quite some time. In our senior management ranks, including our board, we now have achieved overall 38%. We don't see that's good enough. We really see that true gender equality and equity is about the 50%. We know we have pay parity for like-for-like -like jobs, but that's probably what I'd like to touch on, Andrew, is in a world that's requiring skills that really do need connected thinking, long-term strategy, collaboration, planning and inclusiveness, which we see every time that we're needing a community to plan for future change and build resilience and recover. The skills that we aspire to are those that are often termed the softer skills. 
One of my favourite books is The Athena Doctrine that talks about the skills that are acquired when the going gets tough are those that are often seen as the softer skills and one that men should develop as well. And what we reflect on is how do we get females with the skills of the pathway for the future, not for the past? So we've done a lot of work on our workforce strategy for 2022. And what we need to make sure is that we're not getting females into the career paths where they'll be displaced and really strengthen the skills that will be relevant for the future. So I really like Dale's point about the STEM and the technology, because when we're aspiring to be much more of a digital company. And if you think about insurance and the issues of um, autonomous vehicles, for example, and the opportunities, what you pointed out, Andrew, about there are real opportunities we face into a, in a world that is changing rapidly. But unless you're building some diversity in terms of skills, we'll never be able to be successful as organisations. And it's really an opportunity for women to the old saying about leaning in. When I think about the crises that I've experienced and also then in history, it's often female leadership that's stepped up. You only have to think about the world wars, the GFC, and what I'm seeing around the world with the sustainable development goals. But even in history, when you take someone like a Bessie Braddock from my, my birth town of Liverpool, who did a lot of the work on social change, and she was the one who was Infamous in saying the quote to Churchill about, you know, sir, you're drunk. And he said, well, you're ugly and you'll still be the same in the morning. I mean, we face a lot of stereotypes as women. And when we're in senior positions, we have to call it and make sure that even if it's banter, that it's not allowed because that's what will create a more inclusive workplace. And I agree, shifting from the topic of diversity and inclusion to include the word belonging has made a very big change in how people really get this sense of what they have to do. Because otherwise, it's very much a rational thinking piece and not so much about in the heart, how do I feel about being here? But societally, what we're seeing is the value of work really needs to change. So if I think about the skills that's required to achieve the sustainable development goals around housing, around health, around education, why is it all these sectors are actually lower paid as skills? And so if we address that, we will address some of the gender pay equity challenge as well. I liked what Dale was saying about the STEM piece because my sister is a technologist and she also teaches robotics for school kids. And I thought things had changed dramatically since my daughter, who's now 28, was at school. But she said, unfortunately not, there is still a higher propensity of males to do extracurricular activity through robots than the girls. So she's working really hard about how does she attract more females into the class and the robotics that uh, the competitions run on a Saturday. And interestingly, I think where we've got a real opportunity as women is how do we combine our skills of inclusiveness and really think about the ethics question with STEM? So I know my colleague, Julie Batch, who is my fellow group executive here at IAG, who's female, she's actually leading a lot of thinking around things like artificial intelligence and data and how we face into the ethical questions that arise out of those things. And I'll summarise up by saying, you know, from my view here in IAG and the other roles I hold, 
I would actually say we need to redefine what we see as power. Because if we just aspire for the same power base, which is about control, that does not work in a future world. It's about influence, credibility. So how do we make ourselves part of that success? And if businesses don't actually aim for a 50-50 female-male, we can't possibly achieve for our companies or the sustainable development goals. Jackie, thank you very much. Um, our final um, way I see it uh, comes from Siobhan Spoljarik from NRMA. Over to you, Siobhan. I'm Siobhan Spoljarik and I look after sustainability and environment at the NRMA. Now that involves looking at our motoring services businesses, but also it covers our um, network of 44 holiday parks across Australia, our thrifty car rental business in Australia and New Zealand, and also now our marine business, which offers passenger um, transit and tourism services. But I'm coming into this discussion more from our corporate reporting. And as we prepare our integrated um, annual report, we start to look at the diversity figures again. And we've got a really strong story to tell um, around women in leadership. So 50% of our board um, are represented by women. 45 and 48% of our executive and our management levels are women. So this is a very strong, balanced organisation around gender diversity. But when it comes down to our more technical roles, um, and some of these roles are very customer facing, like our patrols and our car servicing mechanics, the numbers drop back to 5%. So that means we are also looking at the, the pipeline of talent. So back in 2015, our, we had one female apprentice in our um, cohort of apprentices that year but in 2018 we're up around 22 23 percent so that's fantastic and it's great progress but it will take a while before they um, you know really change our workforce so this is interesting in the sense that you know because these roles are very customer facing the member might see us as um, not a very diverse organisation. And that's not really a true representation of who we are. So these are areas that we need to focus on in the future. Siobhan, thank you for that. Um, and a lot was discussed that we'll package into a, uh, a variety of um, topics that we've got for further discussion. And we might move um, directly to the first uh, discussion topic, which was that of um, the gender pay gap. Now, in this particular topic, I have posed to our panel um, three questions, and I'm happy to deal with them in an iterative fashion or in globo, meaning one after the other or in their entirety, just for those of me who don't understand what I'm talking about sometimes. Um, and those three questions were, what's the challenge of the pay divide in Australia? Um, not just in the Australian private sector, but just more generally what's driving that um, divide in this, uh, in this 21st century. The second is how does reporting gender pay gap in company reports address the issue? Does it? Uh, reporting is one thing, but uh, movement or action as a result of um, revelation and accountability transparency is another thing. And the final is what steps, whether it's policy, regulation or forms of incentives, would you like to see to address this particular issue? Um, Jackie, I might start with you um, because uh, of the broad ambit that your, your role has within IAG and what's your observation around 
the status of um, this narrative around the gender pay gap in Australian business? Is it one of concern? Is it one of action? Is it one of it will, it will correct itself over time? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. I certainly think it is needing to be a topic that's one of action, but I would like to unpack why. And I think from a gender um, pay gap, I think it links to what skills and what jobs are females in and how, as a society, we value work. So we know, like for like jobs in IAG, there is no pay gap. But when we look at, on average, our females versus our males, there is a gap because it depends on the roles they're holding and how, when we benchmark, those roles are valued by society. Now, of course, in company reports, we do report um, our key management personnel in our annual report. There is a debate um, globally about whether reporting salary has actually helped with transparency at all. And I think that's a whole other topic about ethics and transparency. But I do think having honest conversations within an organisation and not just resting on our laurels that just to say there's equity um, overall in like-for-like jobs, thinking that that's your job done, it is not. And I really do think to address the pay divide in Australia and more widely, we really have to take a step back and think how we value work. And I know I've had a few analysts personally talk to me about my salary because published. And because typically my job would have been seen as one of those softer skills, there's some question about, you know, how different jobs are valued. And I'm not sure reporting it actually gets the solution. It's action. What do we do to really turn the dial to make sure you've got the right career paths, the right value for work? Yeah, it's a very interesting observation and nice pivot then, I think, to Dale um, in a publicly listed company as well and asking that question around the role that reporting gender pay gaps within the, um, uh, by AGL into the public domain and then its comparison, not just across sector, but also across, um, I guess, the industry wide. Dale, what are your thoughts in relation to this issue? So... Uh, I think it's a very good thing that we disclose the gender pay gap. We measure it the same way that Jackie mentioned, that like for like, people in like roles, there is no gender pay gap. But when you add it all up across the across the organisation, we just have more men in some of those, you know, really, really those critical high paying roles. So um, it that comes out as a as a gender pay gap. So the action that we need to take is really that what I spoke about earlier, which is never, never stopping, never resting on your laurels about how many women you have in senior roles, um, but really working on that pipeline, getting more women, getting more women into, into those critical roles, like Jackie mentioned. Um, but reporting on it and disclosing it keeps it front of mind for people. So it's, it's something that you can't hide behind. It's, it's there, it's disclosed, and it's something that we that we all need to take action on. So I think it's, I think the disclosure is great from that sense. I think it needs to come with a, when we do talk about it and certainly when we, whenever we do release it, we have internal conversations within AGL to make sure people understand. It does not mean that people in similar roles, there is any pay gap there. I think as a leader, you should always be in a position that if, um, 
in Australia, we have a culture where you don't talk about how much you earn, but should there be a situation where that is accidentally disclosed and that has happened before, then what conversations are you going to have with your people to say why that is? And so always looking to make sure that you've got parity in pay and similar roles and similar skills is the role of a leader. And knowing that it will be measured and communicated is something that keeps it front of mind and keeps people working towards it. Which is interesting then when we look at um, Arup and NRMA that are neither publicly listed and in the case of Arup, it's a consultancy that in once in its truest sense is actually owned by those people that work at it. So, Karen, what, what's, what role does um, shining a light on, um, uh, on the gender pay gap within an organisation like Arup mean and what does it do about responding to that should it exist? Yeah, it is a bit different at Arup. Um, as you say, we're held in trust and we're staff-owned, so it's a very unusual um, ownership structure, and it means that we we are responsible to all of our staff. So they are the people that would be asking the, the questions quite, quite rightly. Um, so, you know, I think to the point about what is the value of um, having the information to hand, I think you need to have that information to just start the conversation. So we have got a lot better in the last few years at having much clearer, transparent data um, available about comparing gender pay um, for like-for-like like like roles. Um, and we did find that um, it varied, but there were some gaps even for like-for-like like roles. So um, in the last uh, couple of years, for the um, group leaders, when they're undertaking REM reviews um, on an annual basis, we're now given much clearer information and actually given a um, percentage comparison between our gender um, pay levels. Um, so I think, you know, with, with information is power and, and as group leaders, we can now, it's very apparent to us if there is in any kind of um, gender pay gap and, and it's put to us to resolve that. Um, but it's actually not just left to the individual managers. Um, the group CEO, group COO and head of our people and culture um, business, they all review our group um, gender pay ratios and um, and we are responsible to them and we need to be able to explain to them if there is any gap. So it's, it's the information is there, but there is also now accountability. Um, and I think, as has been mentioned, you know, if our, if our company owners, which are our staff, if they are asking questions, they've now got this information, and if they ask the question of why is there a gap there, we need to be able to explain that. So I think we've, we have made a lot, of, um, a lot of progress in terms of reducing that gap. Um, I think it, it's still something that we're working on, but there is a lot more focus on information. So we've, we've done uh, reporting and um, some market mapping across all of our regions and come up with some heat maps of pay gaps across different countries and grades and disciplines. Um, so again, that information is now much more transparent and is something that we can action. Um, so I think, you know, with information, we've become also much more accountable um, and we're now making a lot of headway in terms of um, reducing that pay gap over the last four years between um, female and male salaries. Um, and I think, you know, as I said, we've got 50% of our graduates are female. So, you know, from day one, there is no pay gap. 
Um, but then the, I think where you start to see it is as females move through the middle section of their career and they perhaps take maternity leave or they take and then they come back and work flexibly. I think that is particularly the, the time at which that pay gap can start to be seen. Um, we now offer um, superannuation payments during maternity leave. So that, that is one step that helps. Um, profit share is continue to be paid through um, parental leave, which is another step in the right direction. Um, but I think then it's monitoring when people return to work and if they're returning to a role of you know, equivalent responsibility, even if it is on a part-time basis, then there is absolutely no reason for a pay gap to their male peers. Um, so look, I think it's, it's a work in progress, but um, there is a lot more pressure um, for leaders to be accountable um, and to, to really change um, any, any issues that we're having with pay gap in the organisation. Thank you for that. Let's move now on to STEM um, and uh, a topic that all of you actually raised um, in one form or another and conscious that uh, we need to um, move on. Um, I very much welcome uh, Jackie's thoughts in relation to her point around um, the, the skills issue here and its um, efficacy. Uh, and more broadly, in an age uh, of EV, AV, cyberware, AI, IoT, what role are STEM qualifications and skills going to play in a modern business that, uh, that responds to and reflects diversity? In other words, what is that work going to look like? Are we just going to have highly trained female STEM operatives or are they going to, through the uh, injection of much greater diversity into upper and middle management, going to bring something quite different than perhaps we saw in the 20th century business model? Jackie. Thanks, Andrew. And I'd like to piggyback on some of those earlier comments. I mean, I think our challenge with STEM is being clear what those skills are for our workplace. So when we look at our data analytics, when we look at artificial intelligence, when we look at machine learning, and we look at just overall digitization, they are still very much male skills in the workforce. And so for us participating, particularly in pipeline activities, so the Code Like a Girl, the engineering, women in engineering um, program coming out of New South Wales University, we're really looking at how do we part, be part of the early pipeline because we're not as successful in attracting those skills into IAG right now. And one of the things might be because when you're an insurance company, these skills are diverse skills from our core base of pricing, underwriting claims. And so that topic I mentioned before about inclusion and belonging, it's a double banger here. We have to make sure that people with those skills feel they're part of our future because that will be the future of our company. But we also have to make sure if you're a female within that cohort that we work doubly hard at making sure that you have this sense of belonging. And I mentioned uh, earlier about the question of ethics. I really do think that it's not just the technical skills that's going to be critical in leadership in this area. It's the ethical questions society needs to face in terms of things like privacy, in terms of things like autonomous vehicles, the connected home. They're all things that are front and centre for us as an insurer of how do we make sure that we really live our purpose of making your world a safer place 
And if all these things are game changers, we need to do it in a way that's safe for our people, making sure people are feeling included and a sense of belonging and safe for our customers and communities. So that's a, a neat segue into bringing Siobhan into the conversation. And Siobhan, I'm interested in understanding what a STEM qualified female looks like in your industry, in your sector. Can you share that with us? Yes, well, as you you know, would know that the changing face of mobility means the NRA needs to change as well. So with the um, introduction of electric vehicles and automated vehicles, this is really changing our industry. And that's also changing the skills that we need within our organisation. Um, and the organisation is quite focused on that at the moment. And so we've been really looking at the skill base um, of our motor mechanics, do they, be, do they need to be more auto electricians? But we also need to understand this from what does future mobility mean for our tourism businesses? So there's a whole range of work there um, that the organisation is looking at. But from my perspective as a sustainability manager, I just think the role of STEM is growing um, similar to what um, everyone else is saying is, is rolling in a broader range of roles. So as organisations embed sustainability, um, you know, when uh, your legal team is looking at electricity contracts and do they need to have a, a stronger understanding around renewable energy and battery technologies? Does your com com communications team, should, do they need to be able to talk confidently about climate risk? Now, I think IAG... Um, Arab and AGL probably got that one covered, but from smaller to medium businesses, this is probably an area of development. STEM's got a really important role to play even in our community programs. So we go out and we educate um, children through schools around road safety, but instead of telling children, you know, to put a seatbelt on, um, wear your helmet, we're using science and we talk about the principles of, you know, physics and motion to help children understand why it's important. So these are not necessarily traditional STEM roles. So to me, it is around making sure, particularly if young people are coming through um, school now, and they might be thinking about a career that is, you know, to be a lawyer or to be in marketing, not to underestimate the role um, that STEM has and having a good knowledge of this, um, because it will be really important in a whole range of careers going forward. So Dale, let's, um, let's turn to you and, and the subject of um, STEM, particularly in the issue of whether or not this um, lack of STEM trained and qualified uh, students or postgraduate students is really a gender issue. Uh, what's your take on the, um, the appetite of business for STEM qualified? What going forward are we going to need in terms of STEM qualified? And are we really seeing, or do we need to see a difference between um, STEM females and STEM males? I think that we are going to need more and more STEM skills in business and not just in STEM fields, but in all parts of careers. Every career, every role these days has some element of STEM in it. So, you know, I, I work in technology. There's clearly a whole lot of STEM in my role, but the energy industry that AGL is a part of, so many roles have STEM requirements. 
but you know, you look at all sorts of roles um, from fashion, from, you know, being a chef, all of those roles. There's so much technology, so much science, so much how things work, solving problems and being able to think creatively about how to, how to use the skills that you have to, to apply to those things is, is stuff that's really important in all types of businesses and all types of fields. So more and more STEM skills for everyone, I think is really important. When it comes down to STEM qualifications, I think that gets harder. And I don't know that that is, you know, there's certainly a, a gender problem in those, those uh, streams at universities. And I'm, but I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that it's a, a gender issue as such. I'm not quite sure how to define gender issue, actually. That's why I'm struggling on that point. But, mm. you know, I look at, Look, there's certainly a smaller number of women in engineering um, streams, in technology streams, in science streams than there are than there are men, and and there's a drop-off rate as well. That you know maybe students, uh, you know, you, I, I do see that students are entering university into these fields and then and then pulling out and changing changing streams as well. So there is a problem in there. I think some of the things that cause those problems though are just how we talk about it, how we encourage it, how, you know, the more and more that the media talks about the lack of women in STEM, the less women want to work in STEM. So how do we turn that topic around to start talking about how every role is a STEM role, every job has STEM in it, the kind of careers that, that you can have when you're working in STEM, um, positive role models, positive experiences, great opportunities, and just how all of these subjects are, you know, have that possibility to bring purpose and change the world. That's, that's why I fell in love with technology 25 years ago, really seeing what it's, the possibility of it and how it could help people. So I think, you know, there's, there's so many different things that go into uh, getting more females into STEM subjects at universities. Um, but absolutely, STEM capabilities are, are always going, and it's, the, the dependence on them is going to get more and more in, um, in all sorts of businesses and all sorts of careers as we move forward. Mm. And it's interesting you, you say that about the excitement and yet there are these contrary messages that we're hearing out in the, in the marketplace. And the one that struck me as most interesting was that you're seeing on a regular basis government talking about cuts in research funding, um, lack of support perhaps of the education, the tertiary education sector, and that in itself must be sending some kind of, not so much subliminal, but almost avert a message to um, young men and young women about the investment that a society has in relation to the role that STEM will play into the future. I think, so I think you're right, but I think people need to look at it differently. You know, we've struggled for years to be able to get kids to see what a career in STEM is. But I think if we turn it around and say every field has STEM in it, um, every job in the energy industry, every job in the finance industry, or that STEM's in all of them. And there is so much investment in research development in all of those, you know, across all of those industries that just looking for really specific funding in STEM is... You know, I think we just need to turn it around rather than talking about a STEM career, talk about all the careers that have STEM in it. And that starts to change the perspective that people have when they look at the future. Yeah, it's that, that concept of STEM being not the 32nd flavour of ice cream, but actually the key ingredient in the other 31 flavours. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 
So let's, um, let's while we've got you, talk about the, the final topic, which was investing in women's leadership. And um, right up top, we were talking about how this is one of the key foci of business, um, particularly post the Sustainable Development Goals. And um, to kick it off, um, be very interested in hearing from you and the AGL experience uh, in particular about what signs you're seeing out there in the marketplace in business around the investment in lead uh, women's leadership um, in a post-SDG world? So I think there's still a lot of investment. There's so many specific women's leadership programs and so many organisations have, you know, they have some kind of uh, gender target that they need to hit or that they've, that they've put in place and they have... Um, they put in place a specific women's leadership development program that's going to help them meet that target. And I, I, don't, I don't think that's wrong at all. I think that certainly helps. But what concerns me about those programs is that only a very select few, few people ever get to do them. And there's elements in those, in those programs that uh, so many people can benefit from, and not just women, so many people can benefit from them. And so how do you take, you know, the really, the great things in those programs and make them available on a much broader scale? Because I think you, you keep targeting that same group of people all the time when actually you've got a really broad workforce that you never quite know where the next shining star is going to come from. Um, and you're kind of relying on traditional methods to be able to find out, you know, unearth those stars and put them through these development programs. But how do you work out how to, how to create them for everyone or make them available to everyone? And they're usually really expensive and that's why only a small number of people get to do them. So part of what, you know, I really try to do is how to, how to take, you know, the things that, you know, I've benefited from, from doing those leadership programs in the past and how do I share them with as many people you know, how do I share my 25 years of experience and the leadership development that I've got with as many people as possible? And I think the more leaders and the more people that start doing that and start thinking about rather than just having an event, you know, International Women's Day event on Friday, rather than just having an event, getting people to come, putting on a morning tea or a lunch and moving on, that actually how do we keep creating moments of personal and professional development and leadership for everyone in an organisation is something that I'm really passionate about. So, Karen, um, I'd welcome your thoughts on this challenge, but also, as we were talking at the, um, the top end of the webinar, investing in women's leadership. How can we, as businesses in Australia, as a society for that matter, actually accelerate um, and scale up our investment in women's leadership, not just at, uh, say, the upper and middle management, but right throughout the value chain of business? Yeah, look, I think, um, I think there's a few answers to that. I, I think part of it is we probably do need to be setting, whether it's targets or whether it's goals and, and people feel strongly about those words. Um, but I think if you, if you don't have a plan, then you're never going to get there. Um, so at Arup, we do have a goal of achieving 40-20-40, which is a, you know, a minimum of 40% male and, and female, and then the 20% the is a mixture in the middle. Um, and we're, we're trying to get to that point um, kind of as, as quickly and responsibly in the time frame that we can. Um, and I think, you know, we are already 
exceeding that in terms of graduate intake, but as I said earlier, you know, the challenge is through those middle and those higher levels. Um, so, you know, I think there's, like, I guess my personal view is that there's a few reasons um, that we're not getting there yet. Uh, I think that, you know, role modelling is really important. So it is a little bit of a chicken and egg scenario where if you don't have those senior females role modelling and, and showing how you can maybe bring different personal characteristics to a leadership role and how you perhaps juggle work life and, um, and home life in a leadership role. It's very difficult for younger females to aspire to that and, and to kind of get their head around how that might work. So, you know, you need to bring more females into that position and um, support them in those roles. I think we're, we're starting to need to broaden our horizon around the types of skill sets that we're looking for in our more senior people. Um, I think in an organisation like Arup, we're a very technical business and we do focus a lot on technical excellence, uh, which is, of course, will remain very important to our business. But I think we need to broaden up, broaden out um, our view about what other types of skill sets does our changing market and our changing client base kind of expect. Um, and as you start to appreciate the different skill sets, you actually will reward those with promotion through the ranks. Um, and a similar approach is needed to recruitment. You know, I think we've acknowledged that just waiting for the younger female engineers to come up through the ranks is going to take too long. So we've got a new approach to recruitment where we say, you know, it's no longer good enough if you've got a position to fill that you just, you know, a bloke who knows a bloke, who knows a good bloke, he comes in and gets the job. Um, we now insist on all positions being advertised. And we insist on um, every application process having at least one female applicant. We're doing market testing to actually find out who are those good, good people, both male and female, out there in the marketplace, and actually go and, you know, strategically talk to those people to see if there's any interest. And for our senior roles, we have to have a female on the interview panel. So again, that's just trying to tackle any situations of unconscious bias that might come up through those recruitment processes. Um, I guess from my perspective personally, you know, people often do ask me how do I, you know, do the kind of senior um, role with a lot of responsibility at work whilst juggling, you know, a young family at home. And I think, I guess my first answer, whilst you know having an accommodating company and flexible working arrangements helps, I think a big part of it is sharing the workload at home with your partner. And for me, both of us have done flexible working arrangements, you know, over the last few years. And having that shared responsibility means that I can do the job that I do. So I think that comes back to the importance of offering flexible working arrangements to males and females in our organisations. And I think if more if it becomes more the norm for males to do it as well, that actually enables their female partners um, to, you know, return to the career as the males engage more in the family kind of home, home life, if you like. Um, so, you know, I think, I think we're, we're getting there. I think things are improving. Um, and I th but I do think it's a kind of multi-pronged solution that we're going to have um, to continue progressing and actually bringing in more female talents at those higher levels in the organisation. Karen, thank you so much. And I, I really value the, um, the practical insights in relation to not only work life, but also home life. And I think the, um, the signal there about this is a shared role, this is a, a, um, 
a combined role, a collaborative role, a partnership role um, is, is one very much to be taken forward. Well, that unfortunately is all we have time for today. I want to thank our panellists, Dale Stevens from AGL, Karen Coco from Arup, Jackie Johnson from IAG, and Siobhan Spoljarek from NRMA for their contribution and also their frankness. This webinar has been brought to you by the Business Council for Sustainable Development Australia and its members. Thank you for listening.